I'm Ricky. And I'm Joe, and this is Season 6, Episode 9 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast, slated to come out on May 22nd, 2023. And we have one more episode after this one for the uh, the month, or the, the, the first half of the season. I don't know why I said the month. For the first half of the season, that'll probably come out on the 30th or the 29th or something like that. But uh, then we'll take a break for a little bit. We're going to go on some adventures, and then we'll come back in the fall, and we'll pick things right back up. So before that, we're going to talk about Bojangles Hard Sweet Tea. Steeped like we mean it is what it says on the can. It's You can only buy them in pints. It's 5% ABV, and... It looks like it was made by Appalachian Mountain Brewery, so a North Carolina brewery, I believe. Um, but that's about it. Um, you know, 5% ABV, like I said. It's a cane sugar um, alcohol that's in it, so um, going to be more like a seltzer or mm-hmm. something like that. But uh, have you sipped it? I have sipped it. I'm not a fan. <laughs> we talked about this a little bit before the podcast started, and my fear was going to be, um, for the people out here who are not avid sweet tea drinkers, is you can taste when a sweet tea starts to go, quote-unquote, sour. Yeah. Because what's happening is it's essentially starting to ferment. And if there's no exposure to air, it's just slowly turning into alcohol. If there is exposure to air, it's kind of becoming more like a kombucha where it's turning into vinegar. Right. And that is exactly what this tastes like because it has that it tastes acidity. like the former, not the, not the latter. Yeah. It tastes like it is starting to go what you would call sour. Yeah. Because it is, it's got alcohol in it, which has that high acidity. So you are almost trained as a Southerner who drinks a lot of sweet tea to say this taste is the taste of the sweet tea that has gone bad and I can throw it out. You know, I'm not sure I would be as against it if I didn't have those experiences, but that is essentially what it is. It is a sour sweet tea, but not in the sense that you put like a lemon in it, in the sense that the other's the acidity of the alcohol. Um, I'm not a huge fan. So I'm not having quite that experience. Mm-hmm. But I've got a story about sour tea that okay. I'm going to tell after I give my kind of thoughts on this. Okay, okay. Looking forward to it. Um, it's a college story. I don't tell too many of those. <laughs> if my uh, brother Cliff is listening, he knows all about what I'm about to talk about. I doubt that he is, though. <laughs> um, but, um, so, this, this is hard for me. Not because... Um, this is good. Um, not because I, you know, love it, but it, it hits a note of like, cause this kind of tastes close to what a Long Island iced tea is supposed to taste like. Mm-hmm. Sort of. Not exactly. But it's like the painkiller. It's a little bit too sweet for me. Mm-hmm. But it also hits that note that makes me want to go make and drink sweet tea. Yes, I can see that. It does make me wish that it's like, man, I should throw this out, go buy more sweet tea. Right. Well, or I, what I want to do is go get some um, Louisiana, um, you know, tea bags, mm-hmm. uh, p- pour some water in a pot, and get two pounds of sugar per gallon yep. and, put, <laughs> and put them in and give my beatus, you know, a little food. <laughs> You know, I, I mean, so my grandmother, uh, you know, used to make, uh, uh, my grandmother on my dad's side, she used to make this sweet tea that basically she would just boil the ever-living crap out of about 20 
orange peacoat tea bags mm. and make a gallon of tea and it was the strongest tea like yeah. it was so strong but she'd boil it and she just let it boil and she just let it boil and then she poured over some sugar and it was normally about you know two pounds of sugar <laughs> per per gallon it wasn't quite that much but it was a lot of sugar it was oh, like yeah, it's a lot I, it was like f- four cups i think or something like that. It, it, was, it was a ton. I mean, yeah. um, somebody once told me that the way you make sweet tea as a southerner is you pour in sugar till the spirit of your grandma tells you to stop. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's exactly right. And the spirit of my grandmother would tell me, I I don't need the, the lemon in this. The problem with for me uh, isn't that it tastes like it's gone completely sour. Mm-hmm. The problem for me is the artificial lemon they put in this. That okay. is That is creating an astringent taste into it that I do not like. And it doesn't taste like Bojangles sweet tea, the sweet tea they have at Bojangles, which is really good, you know, store-bought sweet tea mm-hmm. um, or made at, you know, Bojangles. So it's, it's, it's essentially Southern sweet tea. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to counter you with having just looked at the ingredients list. There is no artificial or real lemon in this. Okay. That is that flavor of the sugar of alcohol. Of the sugar alcohol. Okay. That whatever it is that that tastes like that mm. is just not yeah. right. Yeah. No, I mean that's and that's I think the thing that hits me the most. Like, I feel like if you made this drink with malt alcohol, I wouldn't feel the same. But it's cane sugar alcohol. It's literally the same alcohol source as if you let the tea go bad. Well, um, fermented cane sugar. What is the malted rice? Could that be the malted rice that we're tasting in there? I think the malted rice might maybe just be for color or texture because it's the last ingredient on the list. Maybe. I don't know. Either way, yeah. it's not It's, it's not, not as great. good as I, as I thought it was. And, and there were some people talking about it like being great. And I was like, okay, you know, like I'll try it. Yeah, but, but I will say this. There is no excuse for this because you can, if you want an alcoholic tea, I do it all the time because I like an alcoholic tea. If we're yeah. going to like a bar or something, I'm going to eat food. I don't get like a rum and coke. I'll get either a vodka and sweet tea or I'll get like a Jägermeister and sweet tea if I want a mm-hmm. little something extra in it in terms of flavor. Like you can make alcoholic teas that taste like tea that's alcoholic and not tea that is spoiled. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so my story about um, college and, and mm-hmm. spoiled sweet tea. Um, there was this brand of tea called Old South Sweet Tea. And um, my mom got me essentially a pallet of it when I first went to college. She found it on sale, was like, this will be great. We'll get it, like stored it up, surprised me with it so I could have like some home comfort. I wasn't even that far away. I was like maybe 15 minutes away from our house. I didn't go very far to my first time to college. <laughs> But she was, like, worried about it. It was very sweet. And uh, my roommate at the time, who's my brother now, um, you know, he's been adopted in my family, essentially. Um, he and I were like, all right, let's break some of this out. We'll put it in the fridge. We're going to have some. <laughs> and I just remember he cracked the thing open because it was, like, one of those, like, mm. um, you know, bottled sweet teas with the, like, yeah. cap on the top. He cracked the thing open. And he takes a sip, and then his hand shakes, and he just kind of moves it away <laughs> from his mouth. And he was like, <laughs> <laughs> and I took a sip, and I was like, oh, what, what is this? 
it was some of the most vile, spoiled stuff. Uh, It was like, the reason it was on sale was because it was like basically best by date, right? And it was already bad anyways. So it it was just terrible, terrible, terrible sweet tea. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even like really properly sweet. Yeah. It was like funky, fermented nastiness. Oh, yeah, yeah. At that point, all the sugar's being eaten up, so it's not sweet. It's acidic. If it it has oxygen to air, there's actual just, you know, acid in it. Yep. It's like essentially you're making tea vinegar. Well, it had never, it never, it didn't vinegarized yet. It was like just spoiling and and going. So that all ended up going to the trash. I bet. (laughs) But it was, it was funny. Like, I mean, just that look on his face. And Cliff's not a very big man. Mm-hmm. He's a fairly small, thin guy. So, like, the shaking of the hand and everything was just – it was like it was like one of those moments where somebody, like, you know, drinks, like, a, a moonshine or something, and their hand shakes and their yeah. eye squints, and they're like, oh, it's smooth, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like that, one of those moments. Terrible. Um, anyways, so, I, I mean, maybe this is for somebody. I just can't recommend this to anybody. I, you know, I'm going to disagree with you. I'm not sure this is for somebody. Because <laughs> I've had some, like, store-bought alcoholic sweet teas. And none of them have ever been very good compared to what you can make at home. But I think this is really somebody pitched, hey, we make sugarcane alcohol for seltzer drinks in super large quantities. We're looking for something to add to the portfolio. Can I use your name brand and we'll give you 20% of proceeds or something like that? I think this was a product made in a boardroom for profit and not because anyone thought this tasted good. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. What I'm saying is some people that I know, that we both know, mm. said this was great. Really? They think this is awesome. I need to make them a drink. You can, <laughs> look, you can make a great alcoholic sweet tea at home. You don't need this. I, I agree completely. I don't think that this is good. I yeah. think either they've lost their minds or they've been drinking so much like stuff like this that their taste buds are dead or something like that. But yeah, I mean, if you drink almost only like seltzer style drinks, I could maybe see it a bit better because you're used to that alcohol taste. So you yeah. don't have that sugar alcohol association of something's gone bad. And you're like, oh, that tastes just like my favorite painkiller <laughs> or, you know, whatever else they're, they're drinking. I, I, I normally like make sure to finish off whatever we have. I knew I wasn't going to finish this off because it's so many – so many calories and so much sugar that would just be bad for me. I, I'm not even going to have a second, second sip of this. I finished yeah. the tiny amount that I had in my glass just because I wanted to, you know, kind of get that full experience. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I'm, I'm sad. I was, I was expecting this to be something awesome based off of everything I heard, it and it's not good. as good as I liked. All I'm going to say, get a good sweet tea, get like a raspberry vodka. Those go so well together. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to spike up your your sweet tea, mm-hmm. or get like a lemon vodka that that works yep, well that too. Work too. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyways, let's talk about the advantages of analog com- computing versus digital computing. Mm-hmm. All right. Now, before we get into it, I, I know you probably read the Wired article I did. that I put on there. I I read that article, um, but I started thinking about things like the Turing machine. And analog compute systems that we had, you know, like the Iron Fireman or something mm-hmm. like that, that would um, essentially control heat with like a mercury um, thermometer in it or something like that. And those are all systems that do some sort of computing style thing. Yeah. 
but without using ones and zeros, don't have to have like this extra mm-hmm. logic. And essentially they're kind of super responsive because they work off of like physics generally, not mm-hmm. off of like something needs to do something and therefore it has yeah. to go back through a processor, be processed and all this other stuff. So that's kind of where I approached my thought process on this topic from. I know you have thoughts though. <laughs> yeah. So like as someone who had to take some courses in like analog systems and who, you know, my family has a computer science background, but back from kind of that turning point between analog and digital. So like a lot of my dad's early stuff was in analog. When he got his masters, they were already switching into digital. Mm-hmm. So you're getting to see um, stuff like that. So are we going to put the article in the, the notes? Yeah. Gonna, okay. Yeah. So to, to sum up maybe the main point of that article is that some people are looking at introducing analog systems for use cases where digital systems don't scale very well. Yeah. They talk a lot about AI and other very high compute processes where you could instead have what is essentially a specialized analog machine to do it for you. Right. Because every analog machine has to be specialized. That's kind of the downside to it. Yeah. Um, so if you're sitting at home, think about like a mechanical watch, like a pocket watch. You know, you it can tell time great. In fact, modern mechanical watches are actually better than digital watches at keeping time. Um, however, there's not a whole lot you're doing with that other than telling time because it was specialized to do it. You could maybe do a couple other things. If they have, you know, um, it's like a analog watch, but it still runs off of a battery. Mm-hmm. You could put gears in it and kind of the conversion system for the electricity so that if it was a higher volt, it goes faster. Yep. You could make it into some sort of weird voltmeter by seeing yep. how long it takes to rotate it around once, something like that. But you're stuck in those constraints because it's a physical equipment. There is no, I'm translating it. It is, I've been built to perform a task. Yeah, there's no okay. software update you're going to do to it to make it change its ability to be a watch. Yeah. yeah. And there's, in modern analog systems, there is a little bit of programming stuff you can do with it, but it's very difficult. You can't get around the fact that analog is physical. Yeah. You know, you take an example of like a, um, I'm not sure exactly how the iron fireman thing worked, but I know there used to be like, fire detection systems that had a thermometer in it that basically that thermometer would like explode and cause some sort of alert or something to go mm-hmm. off when it got too hot. You know, again, it's physically testing with something. Iron so. fireman is a temperature regulation system for furnaces. Okay. Well, there yeah. you go. So you say you set your, you know, this is how hot I want it to be. It knows based mm-hmm. off of the position of the mercury in it and you get instant response. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's built to do a, like a particular task. So it's really cool to start seeing some of that stuff potentially come back. But it's interesting, like, the implications of it. Mm-hmm. Because what that also leads you towards is suddenly now, let's say, like, let's let's say you just got, like, a regular computer. It's all digital right now. If you switch that over to all analog, suddenly all of those pieces are unique and kind of bespoke that system you can't just take a different cpu and slot it in yeah you can't just take a different graphics card and slot it in because those things might not work together because of the nature of how they operate so it was a very interesting article as it talks about is analog going to come back where is it going to come back if it does come back like what does that mean for the industry and i think probably what it actually means for the industry is that you will start seeing anything that's kind of like analog really landing in the hardware engineering spot not the software engineering 
because I think the software engineering is so just in depth of the digital world right now. And the reduce, I don't want to say reduce complexity. I maybe want to say like, I don't want to say reduce education. Maybe the ease of accessibility because it is a lot easier to be a programmer today than it was 20, 30 years ago. You know, in the sense that, you know, you are not going to import a library into an analog machine. You have to know a lot about mathematics. That's essentially what the original programmers yeah. were, was there were mathematicians who were just doing their math through these tools. There were other mathematicians or electrical engineers, depending on what thing they were doing, but they were either building something based off what the mathematician came up with, or they were the mathematician who was yeah, I mean, creating you, this You thing. even say back then there was a lot of overlap in yeah. what those, those titles yeah, would absolutely. be traditionally called today. So like, you don't get the, like, I can train a developer today that knows almost no math. And as long as they're not building math systems, they can get away with it. Right. You teach them, you know, here's kind of how Boolean works. Here's kind of how basic math is done on the computer. You never have to get past that. Then they're okay. But a return to analog would be a huge, and like, you now need to be very specialized in mathematics, in engineering, and how particular systems work. So I actually think that there are implications that could happen for like home automation and things like that. Uh, and in, in the consumer space, that's where yeah. we would probably see more of these systems come out, um, not in your personal computer or in your smartphone or something like that, because those are more generalized, like, compute kind of things mm -hmm. that do these, like, digital tasks very well. Um, but things that we haven't nailed down that we really suck at, home automation, you know. I flip a switch, I want the lights to come on immediately, or I get up and I want the sensor to have detected my presence and immediately turn on the lights. I don't want to wait two seconds after I get up and the sensor under my bed detects that I've either gotten up or, you know, I put my feet down and then the light under my bed comes on. Because by then I may be having to run outside or deal with something. I could just reach over in that two second in in increment and turn on the light beside the bed. You're not actually solving that problem in a way that's efficient for the end user. So having something that's more of like an analog system that's very responsive, even if it's more bespoke, um, could be the better solution for those things. Uh, that, that was why I brought up the iron yeah. fireman. Because, you know, you get almost immediate temperature control versus a lot of the digital systems that we have that kind of they have to wait, they do whatever, and then they'll turn things on or off. They can't, they're not immediately responsive. You know, so mm -hmm. lights are another example of home automation, presence sensors, things like that. We had solved that like with a lot of analog systems in the 80s, and now we've tried to make them more commercially available and cheaper yeah. through digital systems, but they're proving not to be as useful. Yeah, I was going to say the real barrier there is going to be the cost of the system yeah. because analog things are generally much more expensive to engineer. They're also more prone to breaking. Yeah, so that's true. you know they're more complex. Yeah, but that's I mean that's a decent thought of like I would love to see almost how do I, how do I put this right. So one of the things that you're starting to look at in analog is now getting them at like a chip level. So yeah. there's not these big machines; they're these little small chips. I think an interesting direction for the industry to go is to get these analog manufacturers to be like, we have made our catalog of chips. There's like a hundred or 200 chips that perform particular functions. Right. And now 
you as a product creator can integrate with these analog systems and receive information off of them yeah. to put back into your digital systems. Yeah. Because that helps you keep the cost down. But where you need it, like in your light sensor or something like that, you can get really high performance. It, maybe that one piece is more expensive, but then the rest of your system can be digital. Because, you know, if you let that analog component do the compute and then move it to a digital system to do what digital systems are good at, which is like scalability and storage and things like that, then you might get like a best of both worlds sort of scenario. Yeah. Now the analog chip is still more likely to break, but when it is then commercialized and there is whoever, you know, Intel's analog whatever, and all the ones in that train can just be taken out and put back in, that is now back into the realm of like RMA, home repair, that sort yeah. of stuff. Well, you know, a perfect example of that is like a glass break sensor. Mm -hmm. So that is a analog system, essentially. It's got... Um, something in it that breaks i think it's a um it breaks when a certain level of noise and at a certain frequency yeah hits. it's like a little vacuum tube yeah. or something and that breaks and then that sets off a digital sensor mm -hmm. um and that'll alert whatever system you have things like that are they're super responsive they don't have to wait for that whole second yeah to be able to you know give that feedback and if you look at something like a door sensor, like the one I have here mm -hmm. at the house, when that thing opens, there is a delay between when it opens and whenever I'm alerted yep. that it opened. So having something that was more like maybe even a magnet, that's a simple analog system that can that doesn't really need a whole lot to be yep. able to tell that that happened and then have something that can you know, is maybe wired in or something like that back to your system that can give that state change much faster, mm -hmm. you know? So things like that are much yeah, better. I, I think that is really the future of it as it, it opposes to the normal individual. Right. Which, I mean, we're already there, as you said, there, there are systems already that exist today that are yeah. a mix of the two, but like the idea that you as a developer for a product would have easy access to some analog component that maybe you would traditionally do digitally. Yeah. Could be very good for the market. Could be very good for people. Because, and again, because it is form done, you know, it's like I am buying this chip that does X. You don't have that burden of, okay, now my software developers really need to learn how to do yep. analog systems. You know, because you're buying it as essentially a product from whatever the company produces it. So... It does mean that the there has to be someone that knows how to design those things. Yeah, so which I mean, they're always a developer be. that yeah, that's we've, around. But we've never fully gotten rid of analog, and especially now as people are trying to talk about it in AI because AI is struggling to scale. Yeah, you'll see more of it. But in the same way as you see a separation between software developers and hardware developers mm -hmm. and stuff like that, I think it's really those hardware developers that will start developing analog systems. But that's already a more math-intensive kind of field. I don't think your software developer who writes scripts and websites and stuff like that is going to sit down and learn the calculus involved to make a good analog system. Yeah, uh, and that's that's probably very true. Yeah, not that they couldn't. It's just that why would you? You know, if uh, if you were into that sort of stuff, you would already be a hardware engineer. So talking about digital to analog conversions and things like that, let's talk about some headphones. Okay. Um, so. Uh, we have three headphones that we were looking at. Actually, we have a lot of headphones that we looked at mm -hmm. today. 
Some of them are ones that we've talked about on the channel before. Um, the AKG M220s uh, we talked about like in our first season. Um, the um, bar Barrel Dynamic um, DT770 Pros is one of the ones that we're looking at today. Samson's semi open back studio reference headphones mm -hmm. and uh, the fan music truth ear X critical zeros. Those are IEMs that, you know, so they're a little bit different, but the reason that we're looking at all three of them is next half of the season. What I want to do is sit down and look at all these headphones that we've liked over the years. So the um, Sennheiser HD um, 600s that I have, mm -hmm. The um, planar magnetic um, headphones that I have upstairs that I can't remember the name of right off the top of my head, uh, but those are, um, uh, you know, very, um, ex fairly expensive headphones. Um, the um, uh, uh, ones that we looked at last season um, that are the, um, they make the hemp headphones. Uh, losing my mind here but that those and uh, another pair of headphones that we've looked at in the past that we thought were really good what I want to do is take the headphone stack the the shit stack mm -hmm. <laughs> um, the, it's, it's always weird to say that but I want to take that I want us to listen to all those and kind of find like this is the one that we like the most out of all yeah. these um, now I expect for us to have some very different thoughts on on these sets of headphones mm -hmm. but um, yeah, so go ahead and tell me because you 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 like a particular one that is not or no you like one of the one on this list most out of all all the ones we looked at. So let me say that today mm -hmm. we looked at um, the studio the Status Studios, mm -hmm. um, which uh, those were from Massdrop, uh, the Barrel Dynamic DT seven seventy Pro thirty two ohm headphones, the um, uh, Samson semi open back studio <laughs> reference headphones, the AKG um, uh, um, M220s, and then uh, Sennheiser's HD 569s. Um, so that that's the whole list of headphones we looked at, but the ones that were specifically, okay, well, do we like these headphones? Were they worth what we paid for them? Mm -hmm. You know, stuff like that. Uh, and the music that we listened to was... From the Cyberpunk 2027, 2077 soundtrack V, um, and Dean Martin's "Ain't That a Kick in the Head," and we listened to it through a iPod Mini. Yeah. Okay. So that's all the facts. There you go. Okay. So I put the I think it's the SR650, the not the 850. Uh, the SR650 as my favorite, but kind of tied with the DT770 Pro. Uh, you mean the. Uh, H, the, the Sennheisers? I did not actually write down the brand. I wrote down all the model numbers. Uh, HD 569s or no. the uh, Samson um, Studio Reference headphones? It must, I think it's the Studio Reference. I think that's what the SR is. Okay. The SR 650 or 850 or whichever that is. Uh, the Samsons don't have a number on them. I did somewhere because I wrote one down. <laughs> Maybe that's it's, a number for a different thing. Okay, but, but it's the Samsons that you're talking yeah, yeah. about. Okay. Okay, so th yeah, those were my favorite, but they were very, very close to the DT770 Pro. And the reason for that is, is they're both really good overall headsets. They're both nice and comfy. The bass is better on the, I guess, what do you call it, the studios? The, the, the Samsungs. Samsungs. 
the voice though I do have to give to the DQs. That was way better. Yeah. The voice range was way better on those. But I generally listen to music more like for the music. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't really pay attention to the words because I'm just like jamming out. So I can I can say both of those if I had to like give them a star rating are probably equal. My personal preference is the um, Samsungs. No, Samsung, not Samsung. Samsung. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Samson, like you know, Samson and Delilah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, uh, I, I can see that. Um, so were any of these just terrible and you would never use them? I don't think any of them were terrible. I'll say my lowest rated one were the M220s, which are fully open back. I'm not mm-hmm. a big fan of open backs. I would not listen to those, but that was not like, – that's not a bad headset. Like if you like open backs, you'll probably like that one. They're pretty comfy. The audio quality is not amazing, but it's not awful. And it's really hard to get the the kind of audio quality I like on an open back because it's hard to get really, really good bass on an open back. It's hard to get that feeling of presence like I am in a concert hall with open backs. You know, that's just, that's the name of the game. Yeah. You know, that's just the technology and that's okay. Some people don't like to feel like I am closed in and I know my ears are going to get hot and if I, I walk around and listen to music with these, it's going to feel like I've got, you know... Um, whatever those things are called thing you put on your head in winter earmuffs earmuffs there you yeah. go you know so I, I if you like those sort of things you probably still like it but me personally not a fan okay so now i'm going to tell you some prices before i tell you my mm-hmm. stuff mm-hmm. on here um the dt 770s are about the same as the hd 569s they're about 130 bucks okay to buy on Amazon right now. Um, the Samsons are $35 just flat out. So that's the, your favorite ones, $35. The truth ear IEMs are, um, about 50 bucks for okay. a set of IEMs. Um, now, you know, they have all the stuff where you can replace the cable, stuff mm. like that. Um, the, um, Statuses, the ones that you're wearing right now, they were, I think, $70. They were like 65 bucks. Yeah. Um, when I bought them, they're hard to find, though. So, you know, we have them. I bought them from Mass Drop. I've never, I haven't seen them again at, at Mass Drop. Gotcha. I know that sometimes you can see them, you can find them on Amazon uh, for about, I think, the same price, mm-hmm. or roughly the same. These AKGs, much more expensive. I think they were like 170, 160 bucks, something like that. Okay. But they're they were on a deal when I got them. I got them through Mass Drop also or Drop.com now. Um, but they um, they're like a classic like studio headphone that you use to listen to like when people are doing like um, tracks, and th- but you can still hear like people talking yeah. and stuff like that. Um, so. I, I mean, it. they all have different use cases, different price points, things like that. Of the three that we had, though, the DT770s, the three that we're talking about today, yeah. those were the most expensive. The Samsons are the least expensive. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, I really like the Samsons, so <laughs> I guess I'm okay with that. Uh, but I will, I will give it this. If you are somebody who, like you're like my wife, mm-hmm. who... She listens to music for the lyrics. Everything is lyric heavy. She knows the lyric to every song she likes to listen to. 
um, the Samsons are probably not for you because it is a little muddy on the voices. But yeah. those DT77 Pros, crystal clear yeah. on those voices. Like, you could convince me, like, even in a studio setting. And, and well, I mean, like, well, that, that's what they're supposed like, to be. And they're supposed to be the producer's headphones mm-hmm. where you listen to while you're doing the mix. Yeah, I mean, it's they're perfect for that. I mean, the voice is clearer than you get even attending a concert. Yeah. Because a concert has all that background noise and stuff like that. Yeah. So if that's what you're in there for, you're going to, like, rock out to whatever your song is and you you were listening to lyrics and you love the lyrics and you like to talk about the meanings of the lyrics. Those ones are probably the ones for you. So uh, as I've gotten older, mm-hmm. um, things like comfort, things like wearability, mm-hmm. things like fatigue matter a lot more to me than um, sometimes even like what the best sound quality is or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, and I've also been, <laughs> I've been growing out my hair. Um, and I found a whole new layer of things that are annoying <laughs> about headphones uh, when you've got like long hair and stuff like that. Um, so IEMs, uh, you know, like even Bluetooth in-ear monitors um, have gone from being like one of my favorite ways to have like, you know, easily portable good mm-hmm. music to um, being very difficult because you always trap your hair in with the IEM when you pull it out, it pulls out the IEM. Yeah. It's just uh, not fun. So for that reason, on the bottom of my list are the truth ears. From a sound standpoint, though, the Samsons are on the bottom of my list. Really? Okay. Yes. So the truth ears are on the bottom of my list from, like, comfortability. Um, from I do not like the muddy highs and mids that you get from the Samson. Mm-hmm. Um, that... They're not bad headphones though for thirty five dollars. They're really great. Yeah. Like if I have if I have a kid who wants some headphones, I'll just buy them those. But the Samsons set on my ears. They're supposed to be over ear headphones, like these AKGs. They're made to be mm-hmm. like a clone of these AKGs, as a matter of fact. But the cuffs are so much smaller that they don't set over my ear. They set on my ears. Gotcha. So I do not like that. Now my ears kind of don't fit the statuses either. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I was going to say, because I've got pretty small ears, so like, I didn't have that problem. Right. So that's one of the reasons I don't wear those all the time. I really like the way they sound. The statuses have the most, like, bass presence, um, and it's really boomy, but it's not always as clear, yeah. right? Um, so they're, they're kind of like the um, the Sony um, Bass Pro headphones, the ones that we talked about uh, last season. I bought some used ones. Mm-hmm. Um they're kind of like that. I really like them a whole lot. They're fun to listen to, like, um, you know, electronic music, EDM, and stuff like that yeah. with. But I, I, they fatigue me because they set all my ears. So unless it's an on-ear headphones, like there's a pair of Sennheisers that I have. Um, I forget what they're called. But those set all my ears, and they're fine. I use them for travel normally. They sound really good, but they create a good seal when they sit on your ears. Mm-hmm. They're not nearly as fatiguing, although after about – an hour or two, they're a little too, they, they start to press on the side of my head. Anyways, going through all this to say, um, the AKGs, as much as I like them for monitor headphones, like when mm-hmm. I'm sitting here and I'm listening to, because I can hear what you're doing also, and I get really good feedback on it, I'm not isolated completely, I like them for that. They're probably my favorites for podcasting, like yeah. being able to sit there and talk to someone and everything. But for listening to music, I never listen to music 
with them anymore, even though they're fairly easy to drive and stuff like that. Um, my favorites still are the HD 5.569s, the Sennheiser HD okay. 5.69s, but not because they sound the best. It's because they're the most comfortable. Yes. I will, the first word of my like notes for that one is comfy. Yep. They are the best feeling headset by far. That, that style of headphones that Sennheiser created is just so good mm-hmm. and so comfortable. The... All of them, you know, from the open backs, the Jubilees, all those that have that same sort of like shape of the ear cup, so good. And it's so deep that my ears don't touch the yeah. uh, grills and everything like that. So really like that. All right. But out of the three, the Samsungs, the DT770s, and the Truth Ears, the mm-hmm. DT770s are like my number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samsungs are the least, the Truth Ears are second. But it's – if from a comfortability standpoint Uh, from a sound standpoint i feel like the dt770 pros are the um they are the most flat so they're the most like true to what Mm -hmm. something sounds but they don't have as much they have better like kind of spatial audio in a sense like these open backs do yeah um but they're a little bit fatiguing on the high ends without like doing some sort of like adjustment. Yeah, I can definitely see that. Yeah. Um, but the horns, horns and voices really sound good there. They do. Yeah. Yeah. It's got very good middles, very good highs. The truth ears also are like that. They're lacking a little bit in the bass. The bass is a little toned mm-hmm. down from what I normally like, but their, their highs and mids are very well pronounced, but they're not as spatially, you don't have, like, I don't feel like I'm sitting in a concert and there's yeah, yeah. stuff sitting mm-hmm. out there. You know, there's an orchestra on the right and a, you know, singer on the left, whatever. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, I, none of these headphones are headphones that I would say don't get. And I mean, if you just want a set of headphones that sound pretty good, get the Samsons. They're going to sound, they're going to sound good unless you have something to compare them against. Yeah. Unless you're really there for the voice. You know, if you are like me, then you get high bass headsets, and then you also go into the app for your headset or for your music player and turn the bass up on that too. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you're if you're like that, if you want your ears to feel feel like rock, like you want to feel a physical presence of the music, those are pretty good. But if you want them for anything else, I 100% agree with you. The other ones are better. In fact, that's yeah. even in my notes of like. And, you know, everything here about like, oh, this one's comfy. This one's like medium quality for those right there. It's the only thing I got two words, good bass. Yeah. That's all it is. <laughs> I mean, it has the best bass out of all of them, but it is kind of one note in that. Yeah. And that if you're, you're going to go listen to like music from any era before you kind of had like really heavy metal and really heavy dance music, they're not going to sound that great on. No, they're they're not. Well, they're not going to sound as good as some of these other things. But they're also the cheapest out of all yeah. them. The Samsons are. So, I mean, there's that to weigh. They're not as cheap as the costs. Um, the the really cheap, like ten dollar headphones mm-hmm. that I bought and we tried out, and, not, and neither of us liked them a whole yeah. lot. Um, they're not as cheap as those, but they're still pretty cheap. Um, yeah. So, and and you can just buy them pretty much anywhere. On, on Amazon so yeah I mean if you but if you want something that is more like oh well something else about those the Samsons don't have a 
replaceable um, cable. Yeah, I noticed that. Yeah, neither do the uh, DT770 Pros, where the HD 569s do. Now, the DT770 Pros are supposed to be those barrel dynamics. They're supposed to be, or berry dynamics. Yeah, bear, bearer, bear dynamic DT770 Pros. That's how it's pronounced. Uh, those are supposed to be more like studio, like professional headphones. So a lot of times they don't have the detachable cable yeah. that like audiophile type headphones do. Yeah, you're so. not supposed to be moving them around that much anyway. Yeah, exactly. But if the the Samsons break or something like that, you'd either have to you know crack the head headset open and replace the cable or buy a new one. Mm-hmm. So I look at those things because um, I have had a couple of cables go bad. The statuses use a proprietary connector that I don't like, so I'm always constantly yeah. like looking at, okay, so what are headphones that I can get that are a reasonable price, but I can also replace the cable, um, you know, stuff like that. So um, that is one of the things that I have against some of the other headphones that I have, like the Cost Porta Pros and some of those, they don't have replaceable cables. In order to replace those you have to do a modification of the headset mm. um grados that was the one i was trying to remember the grado um i forgot the model number but the grados that i bought um both of us really liked them a whole lot but they don't have a removable cable either and for yeah. the price i mean why not <laughs> yeah that's that's true at a certain price point you're asking okay i need those quality of life features i'm paying you a lot of money and i can't just replace these whatever i want yeah, exactly. And even if I'm wealthy enough to just replace them whenever I want, why wouldn't you add that in? Mm-hmm. Why are you going to make me have to do that at yep. that point in time? Yeah. So um, I think based off of this, we need to have some sort of uh, thing that we, des- that we decide right now. What, which one of these headsets is going on to be the one that we do um, – you know, in the fall where we sit down and mm-hmm. we look at all of the headsets. Yeah, I mean, I think even though it's not my favorite, the DT770 Pro is probably is what okay. you're on. Because so, that's going to be what holds up against competition. Right. Whereas, you know, you can only get away with a really great bass so far before it's like, yeah, this other one doesn't have as good a bass, but everything else is just so good. Such a high quality. Also, we're not going to be listening to them on an iPod with i mean even though that's got a pretty good dac in Mm -hmm. it that's still not like we're going to be listening to them through the shit stack so yeah 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 so um so that said uh it would be the hd um uh six 600s that i have Mm -hmm. upstairs so the sennheisers the barrel dynamic bearer bayer dynamic TT770 Pros, um, the um, planar magnetics that I have upstairs, mm-hmm. those are like the three fanciest ones, and I think the Grados. Okay. Do you agree with that list? Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. Do We don't have any IEMs in there, and I have a couple of fancy ones, but I think we've already like eliminated that. IEMs are just kind of... Yeah, I mean, they're convenient, but I, I never go to an IEM for like the best sound quality. Yeah, yeah. So we'll let those drop off. All right. 
The I mean, although we didn't even really talk about the truth ears. The truth ears have like their own like bass chamber, and they're like mm-hmm. a really fancy. Yeah, for I mean, fifty bucks, they're pretty awesome. Yeah, for fifty bucks, they're really good. I mean, they they did not score the bottom of my list. They sounded better than some of the other headphones that we listened to. It's just I'm not a big about that form factor. Yeah, and you're right. They're always going to be limited that they have to be in that form factor. When you've got a larger headset, you can put more stuff in it. Yeah, you know <laughs> exactly. That's just the nature of the game. Uh, we don't have any wireless headphones on this either. So I've got a couple of Sennheisers and some other things like that that are wireless headphones. We're not going to add mm-hmm. any of those into this. Although that would be an interesting one. Take our favorite wireless headphones. Yeah, that could be a good and, follow. Uh, and and listen to those. So maybe we'll do that too, in the fall. Otherwise, if you can get um, the Bear Dynamics, um, if you like Sennheiser sound but wanted a little bit more clarity or flatness in the tuning of the headset, the Bear Dynamics are really good. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would suggest getting those. Maybe not the uh, DT770s. They have some 990s and some other things like that with some of those. They're more expensive, but they are also have some of the creature comforts like replaceable cables and stuff. Yeah. That being said, this has been Season 6, Episode 9 of the Beer and Broadband Podcast. It's slated to come out on May 22nd, 2023, so hopefully you'll have caught it at that point. It won't be irrelevant in the future. Um, Otherwise, thank you so much for listening, and we'll catch you next time.